Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have today to gather together in freedom to study your word and to worship you in the highest form of worship, which is the inculcation of Bible doctrine, that we might learn to think as Christ thinks, that we might live in a way that glorifies and honors you. Father, we continue to pray for this nation, for our security, our safety. There are so many who who wish us harm. There are so many who have... Uh, designs against us to destroy us, but we know that our protection, our security lies in you. Father, we pray for those who are fighting in Iraq, for the situation around Fallujah, and we pray that you would give our military leaders wisdom and skill in being able to uh, put down this rabble. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our president, give him wisdom in the decisions that he has to make. Father, we continue to pray for this nation that we might be able to send forth missionaries, that we might be able to stand as a strong support for Israel, and that your word would continue to go forth throughout this world. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied, that we might gain a greater appreciation for how you have worked in history, for the salvation that we have, and the fact that this is not simply some... Uh, abstract philosophy which we study, but this is truth that is grounded in history, grounded in your plan. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We continue our study in this chapter, which is the most extended doctrinal analysis of the resurrection in all of the Scripture. We've looked at the first two verses, which serve as an introduction to this chapter. This chapter consists of some 58 verses. So we will be spending some time here because of the significant doctrine that's here, but the foundation is what Paul lays down in the first two verses where he reminds the Corinthians of the gospel which he proclaimed to them when he first came. That is uh, recorded in Acts chapter 18. When Paul first came to Corinth, he taught them that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone. They accepted that gospel. That's what they believed. That's what they affirmed as a body of believers. We've studied that in the last few weeks. This is the gospel which he proclaimed to them. That's what he means by this, the phrase, which, you, which also you received, and in which you stand. This continues to be the gospel that they hold uh, dearly. Unlike the Galatians who gave up the truth for a false gospel. And then in verse 2, Paul says, "...by which also you are saved." that it is this gospel that saves them, not in the sense of justification salvation, which we studied last time, but because, and in this sense he's talking about the fuller development of the gospel. See, we think of the gospel as just the message for salvation, but the gospel is, because of the grace basis for it, is the foundation for the whole Christian life. 
So he says, by which you are also saved, present tense, ongoing salvation, phase two, sanctification. And that is clear, clarified by the first class condition. If you hold fast that word or that message which I proclaim to you, unless you believed to no purpose, and that is not some sort of faith in Christ that doesn't give you eternal salvation, that is a faith that doesn't develop into sanctification. You're still going to heaven. It's just that that new life in Christ is has now uh, of no avail because of negative volition. And then Paul goes into the foundation of the gospel, which is in the next few verses. Verses 3 and 4 do not give us the content of the gospel. This is not a definition of the gospel. There are many people who take it that way. But this is not a definition of the gospel. This is the foundation of the gospel. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So the there are two elements here indicated by the, stylistically set apart by that phrase, according to the Scriptures. So there's two elements to what Paul taught as the foundation of the Christian life. Number one, that Christ died for our sins. This is the essence of the gospel. The, the phrase there is, utilizes the Greek preposition huper, plus the genitive, which means to die in place of someone. It is the idea of substitutionary atonement. And this is important because when you use the English preposition for, it can have various shades of meaning. So I like to always expand that by translating it, that Christ died as a substitute for our sins. He died for us. Not It's not a, something he did to our advantage. It's not something that he did as an example. It is. There have been different views of the atonement down through the ages. One of the earliest views of the atonement was that, that it was a ransom to Satan. Problem is, to whom are you paying the ransom? It is not the, it is a redemptive price and there is a purchase, but it is not a ransom. That was an erroneous view that was rejected. Then you had the view first clearly articulated by Anselm that it was a substitutionary atonement. And this is the biblically correct view that Christ dies as a substitute for us. He pays the penalty for us. It is a real Payment. It is not a hypothetical payment, and it is not a partial payment. Now, what do I mean when I use those two terms? Well, when I use the term partial payment, what I'm saying here is this is not a payment for the sins of some and not others. That view is called Limited atonement. That Christ died only for the elect. Christ died only for those who were saved, as it were. Okay, now pay close attention here. Christ died, this would say that Christ died only for those who saved. In other words, he paid the penalty for some sins but not for all. He paid the penalty for the sins of those who are saved. He did not pay the penalty for those who are not saved. Now, in answer to that particular position, there was the development after the Reformation, because in the Reformation period there was, under Calvinism, the development of the doctrine of limited atonement. There was a French theologian, who came along and taught this view called hypothetical atonement. Hypothetical atonement. And in that sense, Christ died provisionally. If you believe, then it's applied. 
If you don't believe, it's not applied. Now think about this. This is important because this is a view that many people hold. Here you are. Let's draw a timeline up here. Here you are in your life. X marks the spot. And we'll take two people. We'll take the believer here, A, and the unbeliever here, B. Well, you go down through time, and they both die at this point. You have the tribulation, and then you have the, uh, let's say you come to the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. So here we have the great white throne judgment. Now, believer A has already been saved. He was raptured, received his resurrection body at the cross. I mean, received his resurrection body at, at the rapture, and he is already in heaven. But this person here heard the gospel and rejected it. He shows up at the great white throne judgment. Now, at the great white throne judgment, he's going to be evaluated, according to Revelation 20, according to his works. Now, there's some debate here because some people want to take that term works in sort of a general or generic sense. And what they end up saying is that, well, he's going to die in his sins. And they take that from a couple of passages of Scripture, that he will die in his sins. But the problem is that when his works are evaluated, he is he didn't have faith in Christ. So he's got... He's minus faith in Christ. Because he doesn't have faith in Christ, they say, okay, you are now going to be sent to the lake of fire for your sins. Because they weren't paid for at the cross. Because they weren't paid for because it was only provisional according to this view. And if it's only a provisional payment, then it's not really paid for. You didn't trust Christ, so it didn't get applied. And now you're sent to the lake of fire to pay the penalty for your sins. Well, if you didn't accept Christ so that that payment's not real for you, then did Christ die for this guy's sins when person B ends up in the lake of fire? And a thousand years later you say, did Christ die for your sins? He's going to say no, because that's what I'm paying the penalty for now. So that's sort of a backdoor limited atonement because 10,000 years from now, he's going to be saying, Christ did not die for my sins. He only died for the sins of those people who are in heaven. So this is an extreme, it, it, it seems to satisfy some things for some people, and it's a little bit subtle, and it's a tricky little argument, but the bottom line is that the unbeliever ends up in the lake of fire, and Christ is not truly paid for his sins. We also get into another problem because we look at the term lake of fire as the penalty. Technically, the lake of fire isn't the penalty for sin. Genesis 3, or Genesis 2.17 makes it clear that the penalty for sin is spiritual death. The sentence, the condemnation is the lake of fire. And that is because one lacks righteousness. See, in salvation you have to have two things. Because you are born under the penalty of sin, you are born, first of all, spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. You're born spiritually dead, even though Christ has paid the penalty for those sins. Real, a real payment. He died for all the sins of all humanity. Not just a hypothetical or provisional payment, but a real payment. But you're still born spiritually dead. In other words, you still suffer from the penalty of sin. That problem has to be solved. The second problem that has to be solved is that we are born lacking righteousness. We're minus R. We have to have perfect righteousness in order to have fellowship with God, in order to spend eternity in heaven. These two things have to be solved. Now, what happens is that when a person does not trust Jesus Christ as Savior, they do not have regeneration, and they don't receive perfect righteousness. Their sins are paid for, 
but it hasn't been applied. Because their sins are paid for, sin isn't the issue anymore. But the problem is, they're spiritually dead, and they lack perfect righteousness. And so at the great white throne judgment, they're evaluated on their basis of their works, that is, their, and works there equals good deeds, their attempts at righteousness. But Isaiah 64, 5, 64, 5 still applies, that all of our works of righteousness are filthy rags, not our works of unrighteousness, but works of righteousness. So all of their righteous deeds are going to be stacked up, and it's still going to fall short of the absolute perfect standard of God's righteousness. And because they're spiritually dead and they lack righteousness, they will be sentenced to the lake of fire because they still suffer the penalty of spiritual death. And that penalty has not been removed. The payment for sin has been paid. But the penalty in its spiritual death form has not been applied. That's why when we talk about the three stages of salvation... We talk about phase one being saved from the penalty of sin. It's not being saved from the lake of fire. It's being saved from the penalty of spiritual death. So that at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we have eternal life. This is the basis, the, the first element in the foundation for the gospel. Paul says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that is in first of priority, first of all, that which I also received. Paul received that when he understood the gospel on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, that Christ died as a substitute for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is not something that just happens in the Gospels. This isn't something that suddenly pops into human history when Jesus Christ appears on the earth. Jesus Christ does not just sort of come to a realization of who he is. I don't know if you have watched the host of different shows this last week upon Jesus. Jesus is just such big business right now, and it's all come together in so many different ways. CNN had their special, which was a repeat of one they they had done last year. I saw it originally. And then Fox News had one, and there were different specials on different shows. And one, a couple of things always pop out to me. Watch these things. First of all, they never, never interview a conservative theologian who believes in the literal uh, inerrance, literal inerrancy of scripture, literal inspiration and the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture. They never do. You don't find anybody from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School or Dallas Theological Seminary or Western Conservative Theological Seminary or even a more conservative Southern Baptist school like a, a Southern Baptist uh, Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, or in, any of the others. There's numerous conservative evangelical seminaries, but we're not on their map. And they always talk about, well, scholars and historians say... They never go to anybody who believes the Bible, who believes the evidence, who who takes it as true. And you would think that we're just a bunch of idiots out there. And one of the things that impressed me when I first went to seminary, Dallas Seminary, was the fact that most of my professors not only had their their doctorate in theology from Dallas Seminary, but many of them had PhDs from Aberdeen in Scotland or Edinburgh in Scotland or Cambridge or Oxford or Harvard. In fact, I, um, the head of the Hebrew department who left just the year before I began at Dallas had uh, been offered a full professorship the day he got his Ph.D. from Harvard. Uh, these men were not dummies. They were uh, well-trained, and they knew the other position very well, yet they rejected it. There are wonderful scholars out there in the evangelical camp who do not buy any of this, but they're not interviewed at all. The other thing that you should notice, and this is something that I find interesting today in light of what the Bible says, is that 80% of the scholars they interview are women. When did this happen? 
And the thing that I'm beginning to realize, because I just don't spend a whole lot of time studying the the liberals, is that many of the so-called experts they're interviewing here are part of that radical liberal group called the Jesus Seminar. This consists of a group of liberal scholars who spent about 10 or 15 years going through all of the texts, the verses of the Gospels, trying to decide all this alleged, in their term, the alleged sayings of Jesus, trying to decide what Jesus actually said and what he didn't say. And they had a color coding system. I think they had five different color codes for things that Jesus certainly could not have said, what he absolutely didn't say, what he probably did not say, what uh, they weren't, what what he could have said, what he possibly po- possibly said, or or what he what he said. I can't remember what the categories were. There were like five of them. But it's just an exercise in pure human viewpoint arrogance. But they don't believe the Bible is inspired. Their their view of, of the Bible is that this is just a record of human religious experience. See, it's not a record of human religious experience. It is God's revelation to the human race. So its source is not in man. Its source is in the Holy Spirit, who is the one who moved the prophets to write what they wrote and the apostles to write what they wrote. So Paul says that Christ's death on the cross didn't come as just some surprise event in history. This just isn't something that happened. And what you'll hear these scholars say is that, well, as Jesus grew up, he he suddenly became aware that he might be the one to fulfill these Old Testament prophecies. And granted, as we'll study in the second hour, you have certain uh, things that we don't quite understand in terms of the interaction between the humanity and the deity of Christ and hypostatic union. But I don't think Jesus, as he studies the Old Testament, begins to go, oh, that must be me. <laughs> and w- the way they handle Jesus when he is, when he goes to, uh, when he was 12 years old and he went into, uh, went to Jerusalem with his parents for Passover and they stayed behind and they went back and they found him having a dialogue with the rabbis and the in the temple, and he says, don't you know I must be about my father's business? They treat this as, as, as if he's just another human being who just has this sort of raised religious consciousness. Anyway, it doesn't just happen. It is according to the Scriptures. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians and turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 53. This is the passage that Paul has in mind, and it's a passage we will look at a few times this morning as we go back and forth through this study. Isaiah 53, verse, we'll start in verse 2, talking about the Messiah. Now, the Jew, the modern Jewish interpretation is that the suffering servant, now that's the, that is the theme of this section of Isaiah that the suffering servant is Isaiah, I mean, not Isaiah, is Israel, is the Jews. But this is talking about an individual, not the Jewish nation. That interpretation did not come into vogue among the Jews until the uh, Middle Ages because it was a, a reaction to Christianity. In the early rabbinical thought, this was a reference to the Messiah. They understood it that way. It is interpreted and handled that way. In the New Testament, it's applied to an individual. In reaction to that, rabbinical theology developed a a late interpretation that this applies to Israel or to the Jewish nation as a whole. So if you're witnessing to a Jew, this is one of the things that you have to, to deal with, is demonstrating that this is speaking of an individual. He shall grow up before him, that is, before the Lord, as a tender plant. This emphasizes the humanity of Christ in his his growth in his humanity. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness when we see him. In other words, there was nothing striking about Jesus in his physical appearance. If you went to, to Nazareth and you saw all the kids at play, you wouldn't see one of them with a halo over his head. You, would, you wouldn't be able to tell Jesus, the Messiah, as a 10-year-old from any other 10-year-old 
in Nazareth or any other 20-year-old or 30-year-old. There was nothing about his appearance that, that stood out and made him seem to be different. The last clause of verse 2, there's no beauty that we should desire him. In contrast, we see the reaction, the rejection of him described in verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and that is an an idiom for saying for, for rejection, that we, when you hide your face from someone, you reject them, you turn away from them. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. We did not honor him. Man, as a whole, did not accept him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is a reference to his payment for our sins. And remember, this is poetry, so it is using figurative language to express what took place on the cross. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, man looked at Jesus as having been rejected by God and as, because he hung on the cross as a criminal. But in contrast to this human viewpoint position, he was wounded for our transgressions. There it is, substitutionary atonement. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So this doctrine of substitutionary atonement isn't something that's developed in the later church. It's not something that just popped up on the scene by the apostles. It's not something that Jesus conjured up from his own um, gradual self-consciousness of some sort of religious uh, messiahship. It is something that is grounded in the Old Testament. Back to 1 Corinthians 15.3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died as a substitute for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then the second element of the foundation of the gospel is in verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. Once again, the resurrection is not something that was a surprise. Jesus announced it to his disciples on several occasions but it was also foretold in the Old Testament. It is according to the Scriptures. That's the ultimate standard. And then beginning in verse 5, Paul goes on to list other witnesses. Now, the first legal witness that he marshals, this, think of this as like a trial. What is the evidence for the resurrection? The first evidence is the Scripture. That's the starting point. It's not history. It's not logic. It's not empiricism. The starting point is the Scripture, and then the historical evidence confirms the Scripture. It doesn't prove the Scripture. It doesn't prove the resurrection. It is confirmatory. Now, what Paul is emphasizing here in verse 4 is the central role of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational to the Scripture, and that becomes the theme for the rest of the chapter in chapter 15. So let's look at seven points by way of introduction to the importance of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. First thing that we see is that the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is scriptural. He didn't just sort of have an idealistic resurrection. This is what you'll see in some of the movies Hollywood turns out. Instead of a physical Jesus returning after the after his uh, resurrection, what you'll see is a picture of an empty tomb, or you will just hear his voice, but you don't see a physical Jesus, because that means he's God. Something happened there, but they think that, well, this is just something that was an idea. So, uh, the, But the Bible teaches it was a physical bodily resurrection. Matthew 28, 1 to 11, uh, Mark 16, Luke chapter 24, in John chapter 20, these are the locations of the resurrection narratives. First point, the physical bodily resurrection of Christ is scriptural. Second, the physical bodily resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament. 
The physical bodily resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's prophesied in Jonah 1.17, and it's also prophesied in Psalm 16, 10, and 11, just two references that we'll look at later. Jonah 1.17, the, the sign that Jonah would be in the uh, belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That is a prophecy related to uh, the resurrection of Christ. So the physical bodily resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament. Third, the physical bodily resurrection demonstrates Christ's deity. You see, the claim that was made in the early church that this wasn't a physical resurrection, it was just an immaterial resurrection, is an implicit denial of his deity, and that same thing is true today. See, this is the problem today, is everybody talks about the human Jesus. They don't want to talk about the divine Jesus, the deity of Christ, but what happens is the way they talk about the humanity of Christ always excludes the possibility of him being God. I mean, that's their presupposition is he can't be God, number one. For the liberal, they're not sure that God exists. For the extreme liberal, they know God doesn't exist. And so you can't have God entering into human history. That's impossible. That is that is their assumption before they ever look at the evidence is God can't do this. It wouldn't happen this way. And so that colors how they evaluate the historical data. But the Bible, as we have seen again and again and again, claims that Jesus was God. It's clear from the Old Testament that the Messiah would be God. He would be called, according to um, Isaiah, he would be called Mighty God. He had the attributes. The Messiah was prophesied to have the attributes of deity. When the virgin birth is announced in Isaiah 7.14, he is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. So the Bible claims that the Messiah was God and that Jesus was God. Jesus himself claimed that he was God in passages such as John 8:58, before Abraham was, I am. John 10:30, uh, I and the Father are one. Jesus claimed that he was God. Now that's either a true claim or it's a false claim. If it's a true claim, then he is God. If it's a false claim, then he was lying. If he was lying, he was either doing it intentionally, in which case he is one of the greatest deceivers of all time, or he was it was unintentional, in which case he is psychotic. So you only have three options. He's either the Lord of the universe, the second person of the Trinity who he claimed to be, or he is a deceiver or he is psychotic. The resurrection is evidence of his claim. In John 10:18, he says that the, he would rise from the dead by his own power. Now, there are other passages that teach that it was by the power of the Father, but it is not divorced from the power of Christ. In John 10:18, we read, let's start in verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Grammatically, the I, that is Jesus Christ, is the subject of an active voice verb. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He is the one on the cross that, that gave up his spirit. No one takes it from me, I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So the resurrection is evidence of his claim that he is God. He rose from the dead by his own power. We also know that the Father and Son worked together in the resurrection and that the resurrection is the Father's seal of approval for Christ's redemptive work on the cross. We also know that Jesus rose in the same body that he had during the incarnation, before the crucifixion. Now think about this. He rose in the same body. If he had risen in a different body, then it would not have demonstrated that he was deity. He wouldn't have conquered death. He would have just been given a different body. Furthermore, if he had risen in a different body, it would not have validated the work of salvation. And third, it would not have demonstrated a victory over death. Jesus Christ rose in the same body. When they went to the tomb, they looked inside the tomb, the grave clothes were empty. 
but they were still there. He didn't just get a new body. The old body was transformed into a new body. And this becomes the pattern for all resurrection. This it puts a special emphasis on the value of the physical body that we have. This body, that body that you have right now is the body that is going to be transformed into a new body. Well, people say, well, what happens if you're cremated? What happens if you get caught in some sort of explosion and you're just blown into a million little pieces? What happens if you're put in a grave or you, or you die at sea and you're drowned and, and your body just, just, uh, decomposes and scatters all over everywhere? Well, the God is omnipotent. He, he knows where every molecule is and he'll bring it all back together again. So you don't have to worry that something might happen to your body that makes it impossible for God to put all the pieces back together again. God is able to do that. And that is the pattern. Of course, we always facetiously think, well, what happens if when I die, I donate all my organs? And then the rapture occurs. Well, are they going to lose those organs? Well, I don't know. Just something to keep you awake at night. (laughs) Okay, first three points. Number one, the physical bodily resurrection of Christ is scriptural. Second, the physical bodily resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament. Third, the physical bodily resurrection demonstrates Christ's deity. And fourth, without a physical bodily resurrection, there is no Christianity, period. That is what Paul recognizes in this chapter. If we, if there is no resurrection, verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, uh, excuse me, wrong verse, verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain or empty, without basis, literally in the Greek, kenos, is without basis, and your faith is also empty, kenos, without a basis. So without a physical bodily resurrection, there is no Christianity. And those who have been critics of Christianity, those who are defending other religious systems, recognize that, that this is the critical issue in Christian theology. If there is no physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then there is no Christianity. I thought I turned that on earlier. And there is no physical bodily resurrection. All but a few religious systems are based on philosophies. If you think about it, Confucianism, a lot of New Age philosophies, Manichaeism, most world religions down through the centuries are based on philosophies. Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity are based on persons. In Islam, Muhammad is in the grave. In Judaism, Abraham is in the grave. In Buddhism, Buddha is in the grave. But in Christianity, Jesus Christ is not in the grave. You can't go to Israel and find his tomb and lay a garland on his tomb. It's empty. Philip Schaff, who is a noted church historian, makes the comment, The resurrection of Christ is therefore emphatically a test question upon which depends the truth or falsehood of the Christian religion. It is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion which history records. One or the other. You're not left with a middle option. See, this is the silliness of modern religious liberalism, is they want to hold on to a form of Christianity, but they deny its power. They deny the resurrection. It didn't happen. It's not historical. They try to explain it away. Fifth point. The whole doctrine of the post-salvation Christian life is meaningless without a resurrection. Think about that. The whole doctrine of the post-salvation Christian life is meaningless without a resurrection. The Christian life doesn't mean anything without a physical bodily resurrection because that is the foundation scripturally. Romans 6, 4. Therefore, Paul wrote, We have been buried with him through baptism into death. That is a reference to the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. 
we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too might, so we too might walk in newness of life. Look at the structure. He's drawing a conclusion that at salvation, when we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, that's known as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, that's identification with Christ, that just as Christ is raised from the dead to new life, so too we are raised to new life, or we receive new life at salvation. If there is no physical bodily resurrection, this argument breaks down. There's no newness of life for the believer. You have no new life in Christ. It's just meaningless. So the physical bodily resurrection is a foundation for the entire doctrine of the Christian life. Sixth, the physical bodily resurrection energized the disciples. What happens when Jesus was arrested is they scattered outside of Peter, who kind of lurks around the edges and then ends up denying that he knew Jesus. The other disciples all run and hide. They hide in Jerusalem. They hide outside of Jerusalem. They're afraid that they too will be arrested and they too will be crucified. But what happens is you find these cowards who are running and hiding that in the next 40 to 60 years... These are men who are going to give their lives for the, re- for the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the message they proclaim, and this is the message that they will die for. Now, what explains, what could possibly ex- explain the change in their behavior, unless, of course, they actually did see the physical risen Jesus Christ? You don't have sort of a mass or group hallucination here where they all think they saw Jesus, and on the power of this this uh, uh, sort of self-hypnosis, go out and change the world and proclaim the gospel, and get, with, with only one or two exceptions, they gave their lives for the gospel they preached. And then seventh, the physical bodily resurrection of Christ becomes the pattern for the physical bodily resurrection of every believer. He is the first fruits. He is the first one in history that receives a resurrection body. Now, there were others who were brought back to life. In the Old Testament, you have the widow's son that Elijah brings back to life. In the New Testament, you have Lazarus who dies and is brought back to life. But that is sort of a resuscitation we really have words that fail us at this point because resurrection implies getting a new body. Resuscitation can imply that you weren't really dead to begin with. But it's not a resurrection in the classics in the same sense as Jesus because Jesus gets a new body, a resurrection body that no longer is mortal. But with these others, they just received another mortal body. They received their physical life back, and they lived to a certain point, and then they died. But it wasn't a resuscitation in the sense that they were not really dead. For example, if someone uh, is involved in some sort of water accident and they they uh, stop breathing, they partially drown, and somebody uh, has... Uh, artificial resuscitation, and they come back to life. They didn't fully or completely die. But in this case, they are dead, and then they are resuscitated, brought, and given their physical life back. So those seven points are the introduction to the resurrection. Now, what do the Gospels say in reference to the resurrection? Let's just look at a couple of passages, remind ourselves this resurrection day of what took place on that first resurrection Sunday. In terms of the death of Christ, see, there are various attempts that are made to try to explain away the resurrection. It couldn't have happened. We've never seen it happen. We've never seen anything like it. So so maybe they were mistaken. They were superstitious back then. See, this is the arrogance of modern man, the arrogance of post-enlightenment, uh, Western civilized man. He doesn't think that anything that happened before the so-called scientific age can be properly observed. All those people were just caught up with all sorts of superstitions and funny ideas and 
they they really didn't know what they were looking at and they couldn't explain it. Well, they couldn't explain it in modern scientific terminology, but that doesn't mean that their observations weren't accurate. So one attempt to deal with the resurrection is to say that Jesus really didn't die. So let's look at the evidence. Mark 15, 15 through 20 describes what happens to Jesus before he went to the cross. Those of you who have seen the Passion recently have some idea of this, but when you compare even the graphic violence in the Passion to what the Scriptures relate, and to what contemporary accounts of uh, crucifixion relayed in the in the first century, they really didn't show everything there was to show in the movie. Uh, Mark fifteen fifteen, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So, in the process of crucifixion, the first thing was that the criminal would be whipped mercilessly he would be beaten. So Jesus is handed over to the soldiers who will uh, whip him. Usually there was a class of individuals called lectors or scourgers, and they were the sort of professional ones who would do the whipping. But in this case, you didn't have that. He, Pilate gives him over to the soldiers, so apparently he didn't have uh, any lictors at his disposal. And so it would seem that the soldiers who in the Roman army come from pretty much the lowest levels of society, they're violent and cruel, and that their brutality would have far exceeded that of the normal lictors or scourgers. So in Mark 15:16 we read that the soldiers took him away into the palace that is the praetorium and they called together the whole Roman cohort and they dressed him up in purple see first they whipped him now what does that involve well it, it was so rough that the veins were laid bare the very the, the skin was just torn off the back completely so that the muscles were completely visible the sinews the bowels of the victim were open to exposure so that the skin is literally just whipped or stripped off of the back. And this, of course, would involve uh, not just hitting or whipping the back. They would use a flagrum, which was the Roman whip, which had uh, many different strips of leather attached to it and woven into the strips of leather were pieces of bone and metal and stone, which would be used to rip the flesh off of the back. Now, one of the interesting little anecdotes that I heard in the about the filming of The Passion was the man who played, uh, what was his name, Jim Caviziel. Talked about, they, apparently they had some board that was painted up, fixed up for special effects that was attached to his back. And so when they're stripping the flesh off of his back, and it looks like that on the screen, that's not his back. But he said they missed a few times. See, which means that what that told me was that when they're whipping Jesus, they're just not just stripping the flesh off of his back, but off of his arms and probably down to his buttocks as well, not just limiting that to his back. They were not being uh, technically accurate, making sure they always hit the precise target. Now, after they have done that and his flesh is laid bare and all of those nerves are raw and exposed, then what did they do? Anybody here had a bad sunburn? Don't you just love to put a shirt on over that sunburn? Well, what Jesus was experiencing was a lot worse, and then they put the robe on his back. They dressed him up in a purple robe, and they, then they twisted a crown of thorns together, and they forced that down on his head, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. So he is ridiculed, he's despised, they're spitting on him, but they're putting this garment on top of the raw flesh they've just, just beaten. And then they continued to beat him, verse 19. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing uh, before him. Verse 20, Then after they had mocked him, they then took the purple robe off of him. That did not feel good either. 
They took the robe off of him and then they put his garments back on him. On that raw, exposed flesh. And then they led him out to crucify him. So the pain that he is going through is excruciating. We cannot imagine the physical torment that he is experiencing at this time. So as they led him out to to crucify him in one of the Gospels, it talks about the fact that they brought him to Golgotha, which may indicate that he couldn't make it the whole way under his own power, but they had to carry him uh, the last part of the distance. Once they hung him on the cross, this was not a pleasant death either. It's a time when you're dizzy, you have muscle cramps. Uh, for the time that he's on the cross, for the six or seven hours, there's a raging and burning thirst and starvation. He's hungry. He's sleepless. He has a traumatic fever. Probably the inflammation of, of uh, infection is beginning to take place, not to mention the uh, psychological shame and the torment from all of the uh, insults that were hurled at him. He would experience difficulty breathing as he hung there on the cross because in crucifixion you die from asphyxiation. As you hang there, it forces your lower intestines up against your diaphragm so that it's hard to breathe. Then you have to pull yourself up. And, of course, the only thing you have to pull against are those uh, spikes that are driven into the hand, and you pull yourself up so that you can breathe a little bit, then you fall back down. And this can go on for three or four days in a normal crucifixion. And part of the part of the goal for those who were crucifying uh, a criminal was to keep them alive as long as possible. So there's a certain amount of sadism that would be uh, part of the psychological makeup of the, of the executioners. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ died by probably 3 o'clock in the afternoon after the three hours that he was on the cross, sometime between 3 and 3.30 after he had finished, was when he, when he died. Pilate was amazed when he received word that Jesus had already died. He then sent four executioners to examine him to make sure that he was dead before they uh, certified his death and took would would take him away to a grave. The men that he sent were men that were familiar with that, men who were uh, used again and again in crucifixions to certify death, and so they would not have been fooled. They would know a dead man if they saw one. Furthermore, in John 19.34, we're told that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now, the piercing of his side with a spear did not cause his death. He's not bleeding at this time. But it is a sign that he is already dead. You see, if he was alive, what would have happened was blood would have spurted from the wound. And each time his heart beat, there would have been another surge of blood that would have come out of the wound. But what we have is, a, is blood and water. Now, this is non-technical verbiage, but it indicates that there's been a separation that has taken place in the blood. The red blood cells have separated into red blood cells and then uh, serum, and this would have collected above the diaphragm so that once it was pierced by the spear and the pericardium, then this is what would have come out, indicating that there was death. Dr. William D. Edwards, in a journal in the American Medical Association entitled On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, writes about this. He says, Clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and heart, and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. See, one of the ways that, that folks try to explain away this, uh, the resurrection, is that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He just passed out. It's called the swoon theory. 
and that uh, he just passed out, and they put him in the grave. And sometime over the next day or two, he finally regained consciousness and managed to get out of the grave. Now, that is just absolutely bizarre to think that anybody could do that. First of all, there's clear evidence. All of the evidence points to the fact that Jesus died. Even if he had not died, just on the supposition that the crucifixion didn't kill him, that all of the bleeding that would have come about as a part of the uh, the whipping didn't weaken him. He hasn't eaten now since the night, bef- night before, the evening before, so he would ha- wouldn't have had food. He wouldn't have had anything to drink. He, w- he spent the night uh, where he was wide awake and, and a certain amount of emotional turmoil. Furthermore, that when he was taken off the cross... They wrapped him in a hundred pounds of spices, including myrrh and aloes. And the strong smell and the bitterness of these spices wrapped up with the linens in a tight roll around his body and, and around his face and head would have finished the job if he weren't already dead. We're told in John 19:39 and following that Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And this is um, certified by later testimony in Josephus and other writers of the time that they would take about foot foot. 12-inch wide strips of linen cloth, and they would tightly wrap the body. First thing they would do, they took it off the cross, they would wash it, straighten it out, and then they would begin to wrap it tightly, wrap the arms, the torso, the legs with linen, and then they would put these spices uh, and intersperse that and wrap it in with, into the linen strips. This was not uncommon. Gamaliel, who was uh, Paul's uh, rabbinical teacher, in Jerusalem was said to have been wrapped with 80 pounds of spices. So this was fairly standard procedure for dealing with a, a, a dead body at the time. Now all of this indicates it's just inconceivable that Jesus did not die on the cross. So if he died, you've got to have some other explanation. So the liberal critic says the body was stolen by the disciples. Of course, this would not explain the fact that how did they regain their courage and the reality that many of them gave their life for the gospel they preached? You don't give your life for something you know to be a fraud. If Jesus had not risen from the dead and they had not seen him, what would explain the change in their behavior? Even in a couple of these uh, specials on television the last couple of weeks on on Jesus, several of the liberal uh, theologians have noted this, that this is... Something they can't explain. Normally, the process was that the Romans would leave the body on the cross to putrefy, that all the birds would come along and eat the flesh off the body. But for the Jews, that was contrary to their law, and their standard procedure was to honor the body and to bury it. In the context of Jesus' crucifixion, you have sundown coming, which is the beginning of the day of preparation, and Passover Uh, begins at sundown, so that made it necessary for them to remove the body from the cross. Now, some have claimed that Jesus' body was just taken and thrown into a pit somewhere. Nobody knew where it went, but this is completely contrary to evidence. There's nothing to suggest that in any account anywhere. In fact, Matthew tells us that it was Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb. It was in a garden. It was very close to the location of the crucifixion and... Matthew, Luke, and John each mentioned that it was a new tomb. It was one that was not used. Now, here's a picture of one, a similar type tomb in uh, in Israel. What we do know about the Lord Jesus Christ and his burial is more than we know about any Old Testament person or any member of royalty in Babylon, Egypt, Greece, or Rome. We know more about the procedures around Jesus' burial than we know about any figure and any individual in ancient history. What they did was establish a guard. There was a 
concerned because of Jesus' announcements of his crucifixion, that I mean, that of his resurrection, that perhaps the disciples might try to steal the body. So Matthew tells us in Matthew 27:62. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, the deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. Now a typical Roman guard, which would have been taken from the cohort uh, stationed in Jerusalem, was comprised of four men. One would usually stand on guard, and the other three would relax, um, always ready to aid him in case there was a problem. The stone that was rolled across was one that probably could not be moved except by several several men. Usually they would cut a, a groove into the stone in front of the in front of the tomb or in, into the rock face in front of the tomb so that when they rolled this huge stone in front of the tomb it would it would sink down into this groove and it would be even more difficult to roll it uphill and to get it out of the way. There's a tantalizing hint in a very early manuscript. It's a gloss written in the margin that the stone was so heavy that 20 men could not roll it away. We don't know if that uh, was written at the time, but the early manuscript in which it is found uh, is a copy of one that possibly dates to the uh, first century, and it could have... Uh, been a note indicating common knowledge in the first century regarding the, the tomb. The men set up a seal. And the Romans set up a seal. They would stretch a cord across the stone, and they would put a wax seal on either end, which would show that no one could enter in to, uh, or prevent anyone from entering in to the, uh, to the grave. Tampering with the seal would be punishable by death. Furthermore, in terms of the guard, if anyone fell asleep, that was also punishable by death. And Polybius, who writes somewhat later, describes a punishment, uh, describes the punishment in the Roman army was so great that it produced a faultless attention to detail. Now we're told, John 20, we're given the first account of what took place that resurrection morning. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. See, Jesus is gone. The physical body is gone. Just, and and the, when they wrapped this linen around him with all of these uh, spices, they were rather gummy substance, so they would harden almost like glue. So it would be very difficult if he was had gone through all this torture and crucifixion to try to get out of these linen wrappings. If he had, they would have been scattered everywhere. But everything is just lying there as if the body had just dematerialized, which it had. This is the background for understanding the historical references of 1 Corinthians 15, 5 and following. And we'll come back next time and we will go through the historic, more of the historical evidences on the resurrection of Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to realize that this just isn't some philosophy, that this just isn't sort of abstract doctrine, but this is rooted in history. It's rooted in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you work in history not in some sort of private, subjective way, but in a way that is verifiable, a way that is testable, a way that provides evidence in history that what you say and what you do is real. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, 
that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. It's not based on uh, your morality. It's not based on ritual. It's not based on religious observance. It's based on trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation. At the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal salvation, which can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning because of what we have studied, what we have learned. We pray that you would challenge us with these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.